0: Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously
1: abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moeddin, the host of Gay Girl
0: Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get
1: your podcasts.
0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: i'm dr brian goldman welcome to the dose today we're talking weight not an easy subject especially during the pandemic hi sean um how you doing today well thank you thanks for having me here uh what's your go-to food that you like to eat when you're under stress
0: well, I'm kind of a stickler for the President's Choice chocolate chip cookies. I absolutely love them, and I try not to buy them, but it's hard.
1: It is very <laughs> hard. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, mine is uh, Kraft peanut butter, and uh close second is Miss Vicky's uh, chips, original flavor. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Sean, I want you to begin by saying, why don't you give us a, hi, my name is, and a sentence or two and tell us what you do.
0: Okay. Hi. My name is Dr. Sean Wharton. I'm an internal medicine doctor, and um, I'm a prof at McMaster and York University, but I'm the medical director for the Wharton Medical Clinic, which is an obesity and a diabetes community-based clinic.
1: Okay. Here we go. Over 60% of Canadian adults are overweight or obese. At the same time, studies show people have gained weight during the pandemic. In one poll back in November, One-third of the people surveyed said that they'd put on pandemic pounds, and that was before the holidays. Worrying stats, especially as we know that obesity puts you at significantly higher risk for bad COVID outcomes. Doctors tell patients to lose weight all the time. Uh, If they could do it easily, they would. And, well, we wouldn't have much to talk about today, would we? So today on The Dose, we're asking, what does the newest science say about how to lose weight, especially during covid And Dr. Sean Wharton is here to answer that question. So, Sean, welcome to The Dose. Glad to have you.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: As a physician, I know the numbers on the body mass index that determine a a patient is uh, overweight. Um, We've talked on The Dose before about why the BMI isn't really a great measure of health. So how do you define someone who is obese? So first of all, we
0: try to make it a first person language. So how do we define somebody who's living with obesity? We don't want the weight to be a defining characteristic. So I would more so define it by, do you have toxic fat cells that are
1: causing a medical condition? That is obesity. And those toxic fat cells cause what? I know one of the things, they cause inflammation, don't they?
0: Yep. So inflammation is the main thing they cause. And that's why it causes problems throughout the entire body. Um, the inflammation goes to the lungs, it goes to the brain, it goes to the kidneys, it goes to the vessels within the lower leg to cause problems. It, it goes everywhere and causes toxicity. And it's also locally, it infiltrates into the fat, in, into, the, into the liver and into organs and causes damage
1: even there. So some of the things you might have that that are kind of obesity-defining conditions would include fatty liver, osteoarthritis of the knees, heart failure... What are some of the others?
0: So you can also get obstructive sleep apnea, um, um, coronary artery disease, and inflammation that goes to the lungs to make COVID-19 even worse. The other thing that I really want to mention is inflammation causes cancer in many cells because it attacks the cells, the cells have to fix themselves on a regular basis. So colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, um, all are at a much higher rate because of obesity.
1: And that's a really important point. Uh, of course, we are in the midst of a pandemic and the risk of death from COVID-19 is about 10 times higher in countries where most of the population is overweight, according to a report that was released Wednesday by the World Obesity Federation. You've already told us that obesity increases inflammation in, in the lungs and that contributes to some of the lung complications. Are there any other factors that connect obesity to, uh, to worse outcomes with COVID-19?
0: Well, we know that uh, when people are living with obesity, oftentimes there are other medical conditions that come, come with it as well. So, so the inflammation doesn't just attack, obviously, the, the, the lungs, but because it attacks the kidneys as well, um, and inflammation goes to the kidneys, it causes clots in the kidneys and some other challenges. So, so you may, we may see kidney damage faster in somebody living with obesity. And also heart failure. So preserved ejection fraction heart failure, which is a newer type of heart failure that we haven't talked about in, in, the, in the past. We think about somebody who has had a heart attack and their heart is failing. That is the most common uh, type of heart heart failure, but preserved ejection fraction heart failure could, we could be seeing in people living with obesity, and that is what we may be seeing in, um, uh, in COVID-19.
1: So, Sean, uh, you know we, we're talking about obesity uh, specifically, but a lot of people listening to us right now may not meet the criteria for obesity. They they may be overweight. So, so what happens if you're overweight, not obese, and get COVID nineteen?
0: So the data is not as strong that you're going to run into di- difficulties in the intensive care unit or in terms of your your overall morbidity status. So it's really the patients with a BMI of greater than forty. But there are specific ethnic groups and specific people who within the overweight category are manifesting um, a lot of inflammatory um, uh, challenges and problems. So we can uh, talk about white males um, in the overweight category have toxic cells in the central area, the South Asian and also the indigenous population. So those are some of the groups where we see in the overweight category, they run into medical problems.
1: Sean, I noticed that you mentioned uh, BMI, body mass index, and our first ever episode of The Dose actually kicked BMI to the curb. So remind us, what are the issues with using BMI as a measurement? Right. So BMI looks
0: at a person's height and then a, a person's weight. So the BMI tables were calculated with white males in the 1930s. So they weren't designed for um, African-American females, black females, they weren't designed for South Asian, for the indigenous population. And so mm-hmm. when we look at different groups, they don't fit well with the BMI. We know that African-American women, black women, put their weight into their hips and into their thighs. They can go up to a BMI of 32 before they run into any medical problems or challenges, whereas a white male puts their energy into the central area and they run into difficulties at BMIs of 27 and 28. Very different people.
1: So, Sean, my head's spinning with lots of questions, and, and I'm sure the people that are listening to us uh, are, are trying to kind of get through this science, which is becoming increasingly complex. But, but who needs to lose weight then? You will
0: need to lose weight if your, the fat cells that you've accumulated, the excess ones, are causing a medical condition. And how do you know that? You know that by looking at your blood sugar. If your hemoglobin A1C or your fasting blood sugar is elevated, then you are running into a problem. If your blood pressure is high, then you're running into a problem. If your, the amount of fat cells in your central area is pushing on your bladder, and causing incontinence, you're running into problems. So look at the diseases and the health conditions and even mental health, mental health conditions that are caused by elevated weight. If that's the challenge, then that's who needs help. If you just have weight that's a little higher than the rest of the population, but you've got great knees, your blood sugar is perfect and everything else is great, then you are perfect and you're looking good, no
1: problems. Um, let's talk about um, diets from and, and, and some of the the, the the usual advice that that's been given traditionally from aerobics to the Atkins diet we've collectively tried many different ways to lose weight in the past decades. What does the best science today tell us about the most effective way to lose weight?
0: So that is a very big and challenging question. There's multiple, multiple levels and different things for different people. So the individualization of this based on who you are, where you are, how you feel, who your family is, what your what your ethnic background is, that all dictates what would be the best thing for you. So not starting with what is the best diet or what is the best exercise, but starting with why are you doing this? What are your values? Who cares about you? And who do you care about to be able to do what you want to do? What are you doing and why are you doing it? That's the starting point. And then the other things fall into place in a much easier fashion when we can answer those things.
1: So, Sean, you talk about three pillars. Uh, Which is the first one? So
0: the first one is a psychological intervention. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most important pillars. And that talks about your own self values and what, why you're doing what it is you're doing and how you can do it on a continued, continued basis. So CBT for people working with weight looks at things like, um, people say that I don't have a problem, um, eating at 10 o'clock in the morning or in the afternoon. It's the evening eating that is the problem. So why is the evening eating? Always a problem. It's because we may have had a difficult day at work, and then we use a t- um, food as a soothing aspect in the evening. Some people who have alcohol problems would use alcohol, and other people would use other things. So there's an addictive component and a soothing component, and we have to recognize that. So being cognizant of of the challenge and the and the and the actual behavior is what you need. And now you would look at what can I use to switch the behavior. Or you were to change it. Uh, and um, and we now need to have a resilience pattern, a restraint pattern. We need to have a better way of eating throughout the, the day so we don't get overly hungry. We need to have a, a system in, in place. So that is the cognitive behavioral therapy, is understanding why you're doing it, what you're doing it, and what triggers you to do things over and over again.
1: Uh, Sean, I've looked at some of your readings and and you talk about the, the need to love yourself at whatever weight you are. And I loved when I read that. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah. So that's really important. So when people start to want to do weight management, they're always thinking of a point that they can get to. I want to be the weight I was um, before I got married, before I had a child, when I was in my um, early twenties. And frequently it's that I will feel better and love myself more when I get to that stage. And that's not right. What the evidence and the research has shown is that if you don't love yourself now at that weight of 315 pounds, 350, 400, then the chance of you loving yourself and taking care of yourself when you get to a lower weight is very, very low. And that's, and that's not just a anecdotal, that's, that's research, research evidence. So we need to work on self-love now. And that puts us in a position to actually win, to do the things in an appropriate fashion because we care about ourselves, we love ourselves all the way through. And if there's a misstep or a slip, that's okay. We're still taking care of ourselves and loving ourselves and keep on moving forward.
1: But the sense I've got is that is that many people who uh, weigh more than they they used to a lot more than they used to loathe themselves. So how do you how do you start that? How do you change that?
0: You just, well we can change it by some of the external cues and the external cues a lot of time comes from the family doctor from the people that they they will look up to for the advice and for the information and just saying things like I'm proud of you for starting this, for wanting to go down this, uh, this line and this, this road, which is a challenging one of, of doing weight, and we'll do it as a team. I'm proud of you for doing it and I'll be proud of you even when you misstep because I will be here. Uh, so that's where we can, we can start is externally. And then the person needs to build it into an internal, love
1: and that works out much better so we've started with the psychological interventions there are two other pillars to your to your three pillar uh, strategy what are those
0: and the second pillar is pharmacotherapy so medications um uh work very well within the weight management fields. And the third pillar is bariatric surgery.
1: So let's talk, Let's take them one at a time. The holy grail has been the, the attempts by the big pharma to develop uh, medications that, that can help people who, who want to lose weight. So what do we know about those?
0: So for the first thing that we need to know is that the brain is the primary organ that has the control of weight. So once we understand that it's the brain and it's the hypothalamus, which is the part of the brain that wants to keep things static or this the same. So if you get to 350 pounds, the brain doesn't like it when you go down to 300 pounds, it wants you to go back to 350. It thinks that that is the best point. We also have the addictive part of of the the, the brain that has cravings and this intensity. So we need to recognize that that intense part of the brain is always working, firing and if you have a couple genes that are more intense in that area it will be challenging so once we know that it's the brain that drives weight we can now look at medications of pharmacotherapy that work within the brain to dampen those cravings that hunger the intensity to let the body use the stored energy for the daily calorie needs and that's
1: what pharmacotherapy does and uh, can you give us some of the names of some of these medications
0: Right. So the ones that have been working well are the um, uh, are the GLP-1 analogs. So GLP-1 is a hormone that we make. So after you have dinner tonight, food will go past your your um, um, uh, your stomach and your small intestines, and it will trigger hormones. And those hormones will go to the pancreas to say you've just had food. You should release insulin, and it will go to the brain and tell the brain you've had food. You should stop eating. People living with obesity don't have enough of that hormone to tell the brain you've just been eating, stop eating, do not have any hunger. So the GLP-1 analog is that we so we give extra amount of it. So it is a injection and you get a little more GLP-1 analog than you are normally making. And then there's another one which is a combination drug which looks at a, um, a combination of opioid and alcohol addiction drugs. So that addiction part of the brain I was talking about, if you can calm that down combined with a antidepressant drug, those two together work very nicely within the brain neurochemistry to calm down hunger and allow you to use your stored energy cells.
1: Okay. So what about bariatric surgery?
0: So bariatric surgery works really well again in the brain. So the, the surgery is not having a huge impact in terms of making the stomach smaller and that's why you can't eat, et cetera. That's not what, what it actually does. What it does is it triggers hormones to go to the brain to change the way that we think about food, um, our cravings for food, our hunger, and allows the body to use the stored fat cells. So that's what bariatric surgery does.
1: And, and at what level? Of, of severity of obesity uh, are medications used and and bariatric surgery.
0: So bariatric surgery, we'll start with that one, um, is um, is used at the more extreme levels. So if you have a BMI greater than forty, you actually qualify for bariatric surgery, and if you have a BMI between thirty five to forty and you have type two diabetes, you also qualify because bariatric surgery essentially cures type two diabetes. The the medications, the pharmacotherapy, start to uh, can work at, at higher BMIs. All the the way down to lower BMIs. So it works, it works well for many, many people.
1: So what is the role of exercise versus diet in losing weight? So,
0: so exercise is probably the most important thing that people can do for their overall health if you increase your activity if you have more exercise it decreases your risk of alzheimer's your risk of diabetes of fatty liver it's terrific it's the most important thing you can do but but activity does not have a significant impact on weight change Um, But it's oftentimes what we see is that activity and dietary interventions are paired together. When someone is feeling great, they're on track, their life is going well, they're having a good diet, they're exercising, they combine the fact that I lost weight because I was
1: exercising. Well, you actually probably lost weight because the dietary intervention during that time was was really good. But the most important thing you've said is exercise to be healthy, not to lose weight. Correct, that's the most important. Okay, so let's talk about diet. People want to know what they should be eating or not eating. Do you ever recommend any specific diet?
0: No, I don't. I do not recommend a specific diet besides having a healthy diet and something that... That that you like something that you can you can do or you feel you can do a healthy diet that they have some support mechanisms with. Let's say their their friend is doing it, um, um, their family member is doing it, and it's a healthy one. It could be a, a a ketogenic diet, it could be a um, a wheat belly diet, it could be the Mediterranean diet, the Dash diet, a uh, uh, plant based diet, whatever it is, as long as it's healthy, it makes you happy. There's a chance you think that you could continue. With it, you've got support mechanisms, it works within your life structure, let's do that one. And then let's work on how we keep it going. Um, and that means I may need to talk to my doctor. It's recognizing the level of help that you actually
1: need. And I'll add one more tip. Try to find a compassionate health professional like you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs>
1: Dr. Sean Wharton, thank you so much. Absolutely, thank you, Brian. That was Dr. Sean Wharton. He's an adjunct professor at McMaster University and York University, and the medical director of the Wharton Medical Clinic, a diabetes and obesity clinic. Here's some smart advice for losing weight, especially during the pandemic. If you're five or 10 pounds overweight, the advice is straightforward. Eat less and exercise more. Avoid snacking late at night when you're tired and stressed. The advice gets much more complicated if you're obese, if you wanna lose at least 30 to 40 pounds or if you have a track record of yo-yo dieting. First, recognize that obesity is a disease in which the body's fat or adipose tissue releases chemicals that increase inflammation. You have the obesity disease if you also have type two diabetes, arthritis in the knees, fatty liver, heart failure, and other medical conditions. If you can't address obesity just by eating less and exercising, Start exercising not to lose weight, but because it's good for your health. Your brain is in charge of weight regulation. Emotions like anxiety and feeling stressed affect how much food you crave and how much you eat. Dr. Sean Wharton says there are three pillars to treating obesity. The first is psychological. Approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT work because they help unpack when during the day you eat and why. The second are medications prescribed by your healthcare provider that work on the brain. One type reduces food cravings and another sends a signal to your brain telling you you're full so you eat less. The third pillar is bariatric surgery. Like medication, it fools your brain into thinking you're full so you eat less. Of course, that's a big step, not to be taken lightly. As we've said before on the dose, health professionals no longer use body mass index or BMI to define obesity but they still use it to define who's eligible for bariatric surgery. To be eligible for surgery, you need a BMI of 40 or more, 35 or more, if you also have type 2 diabetes. As far as diets are concerned, none have been proven to help you lose weight and keep it off. Some diets are healthier for certain diseases. For example, a keto diet may be better for people with type 2 diabetes. If you want to try a diet, choose one where you have friends and others who can support you, so you stick with it. One final thing. Dr. Wharton says the most important psychological intervention is to love yourself no matter what you weigh. Be proud of yourself even if you're struggling to maintain your weight. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and Whitecoat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Willow Smith, Sajada Berry, and Donna Dingwall with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Lada Antonelli for technical support. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.